This episode is dedicated to the memory of Muhammad Zakaria Ghanaim, an Egyptian archaeologist whose story is central to the tale. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 4b, The Buried Pyramid. This is a side episode, some extra content to go along with episode 4. If you are just here for the main story, you are welcome to skip this content. Otherwise, stick around for some truly fascinating tales. Today, we learn about the wonderful Buried Pyramid, discovered at Saqqara in the 1950s, and one of the most intriguing monuments of its age. Also, we dig into the lesser-known rulers of Dynasty III, the kings who followed Netjeriket Djoser, but who are almost forgotten today. It is time to dig beneath the sands, uncovering tombs hidden from the world. The year was 2650 BCE, approximately. On Egypt's western horizon, the world's first pyramid loomed like a mountain. The Step Pyramid, commissioned by Netjeriket Djoser, was a landmark achievement in architectural design and economic organisation. Thousands of blocks, all of stone, had been raised in six beautiful layers, forming a staircase to heaven. Every evening, people living nearby would see the sun set behind this structure, a new and artificial addition to the natural horizon. In terms of historical moments, this was a big one. Netjeriket Djoser lay within a vault far beneath the pyramid. You might imagine a golden coffin surrounded by treasures, but this was not the case. The idea of pharaonic burials glittering with gold comes later in Egyptian history. In these early days, the style was different. Instead of a golden coffin, Netjeriket's sarcophagus and many of his burial goods were made of stone. Excavators working here uncovered thousands, literally thousands, of pots, jugs, ornaments and wares made from beautiful, high-quality stones. That may not sound particularly impressive, but bear with me for a second. It is actually a big deal. By the time Netjeriket died, the Egyptians had become masters of carving and decorating stone. They had been working at it for centuries, ever since the days of the Paleolithic, or Stone Age, long before the kingdom emerged. Generations of artisans, using stone tools, had figured out the properties and merits of different stones. They knew what worked, and what kinds of stone were good for carving other kinds of stone. What this means is that they had developed a rather large industry around stoneworking. Netjeriket's tomb was filled with stone vessels in various shapes. Some of them looked like you would expect, fancy jugs with decoration. Others were more unusual, vases in the shape of towers or fortresses, elaborate cups and saucers, bowls and offering tables. A huge variety of designs, and as the workers kept digging, more pieces of stonework came to light. Eventually, archaeologists had recovered more than 40,000 pieces of high-quality art. 40,000. Wow. 
There are two reasons why these stone vessels are so impressive. Firstly, they represent an incredible accumulation of wealth. Every vessel had to be carved and polished, which took a great deal of effort and time. The carvers were using tools made of stone to slowly chip, grind, and polish the vessels into their final form. It was not an easy job, and modern experiments using the same tools suggest that a single high-quality vessel could take months to complete. You can see one of these experiments on YouTube, and there is a link in the episode description. Now, not every item was the same high quality. Some were rough, and the vessels came in many different sizes, from very large to very small. So it's not like the artists were producing 40,000 masterpieces. But even so, you are looking at a couple of weeks' effort, minimum, for each and every item. As you can imagine, this kind of project would require many workers labouring for years to produce the goods needed. Which leads to the second reason that these vessels are so impressive. Netjeriket's collection of 40,000 stone items is significant because it represents the effort of an entire industry. The vessels were not produced by a small group of amateurs. They were the products of a skilled workforce, trained over generations, and now working to a single goal. As you can imagine, this kind of luxury industry was an expensive and enormous enterprise. Why would the Egyptians do this? Well, there are a couple of reasons. In episode 4, we met the royal official Imhotep. Imhotep, the famous architect, may have designed the steppe pyramid and helped to plan its construction. In his life, Imhotep filled many jobs in the royal government. He was a priest, administrator, a leader of councils and courts, and he was the overseer of stone carvers. One of Imhotep's most important jobs was directing the industry that produced stone. In this job, he probably organised the workers who made these 40,000 vessels for the king. We can assume that he had underlings and managers who did the day-to-day -day work, but overall, Emotep was probably the man responsible for this particular industry. The fact that Emotep, the highest official, was also in charge of stoneworking tells you how important this industry was. By the time he took up his role, the Egyptians had created a skilled, well-organised workforce dedicated to producing these goods. The stone carvers and the products they made were an important part of the royal economy. On the one hand, these items were perfectly useful, and stone vessels probably showed up a lot in temple rituals, royal ceremonies, and the banquets of the rich and powerful. On the other hand, the beauty and cost of these items also made them valuable as symbols. It seems that stone vessels were a mark of status and wealth during this period. This makes sense. The items were so labour-intensive, so costly, that only the privileged and the powerful could afford many of them. And if the king wanted to reward someone or honour them, he might give a beautiful stone vessel as a symbolic gift. This symbolism actually filtered into the Egyptian language. Later on, one of the terms for buying something included a hieroglyph of a stone vessel, which suggests that these stone items were not just pretty ornaments, they were also a type of currency. 
Nat Jerry Cat did not take a collection of useless art, quote-unquote, into his tomb. He took an enormous amount of wealth. The stone vessels were valuable, the product of a hundred workers, labouring for millions of hours to produce the most beautiful goods. Imagine going to your grave with 40,000 Swiss watches, and maybe you have something similar. So, Netjeriket Joza went to his grave surrounded by incredible wealth. It was not the gold or art of later periods, but it was just as valuable. A collection of stone goods that represented time and effort by hundreds of people. Add to that the enormous pyramid above him, itself the product of thousands of labourers, and you have the tomb of an astronomically wealthy man. One last feature of this collection that is quite interesting is that many of the stone vessels were heirlooms. Netjeriket's artists produced thousands of stone items, but they also gathered many items that belonged to earlier periods. Among the vast array of goods, many of the vessels bore inscriptions or texts related to other kings. Whether these goods came from private collections or the tombs of earlier rulers is unclear, but what is clear is that Netjeriket collected a range of items from the full history of his kingdom. Among others, we see names belonging to the rulers of the second and first dynasties. Names like Ka and Ninetjer, rulers who are largely forgotten today, but whose heirlooms turned up in the steppe pyramid. There were even vessels marked with the name Namer, the first quote-unquote king of a unified Egypt. That is quite impressive. By the time Netjeriket came to power, Namer was 300 years or more in the past. So the king was really investing in these antiques to furnish his burial. If nothing else, this should give you a sense of just how old and accomplished the Egyptian kingdom is. The steppe pyramid of Netjeriket Djosa was an immense achievement, a monument to the power and wealth of Egypt's ruler. When the king died in 2650 BCE, give or take, he left behind a government that was larger, with more authority than ever before. After Djosa, the next few generations are a period we do not know that much about. The third dynasty is shadowy, mysterious in many respects. But it does offer some fascinating and amazing tidbits of information. Among other things, this period is notable for the number of pyramids built up and down the Nile Valley. Third Dynasty kings went above and beyond in their attempts to outshine Djosa. In the process, they created some of the most fascinating monuments in Egyptian archaeology. After the break, we begin exploring the Third Dynasty, starting with Djosa's successor and the pyramid he built, which only came to light in the 1950s. In Chapter 2, we explore the Buried Pyramid and what it tells us about this strange period. That is after the break. See you in a moment.
The year was 2650 BCE. Netjeriket Joza was dead, and as the king's body was laid to rest, the kingship passed to a new generation. Netjeriket's heir was named Sekemket, a name which translates as powerful of body. Sekemket is a shadowy figure, we do not know much about him, but we knew even less prior to the 1950s. In that decade, a team of archaeologists were amazed when they unexpectedly found Sekemket's pyramid. Every now and again, a new pyramid comes to light. Which may sound surprising, how do you lose a monument that big? Well, you don't, not if the pyramid is intact and complete. Even a half-finished monument is visible on the horizon, a mound sticking out like a sore thumb. But there are many pyramids that never even reached half-finished. A lot of them were abandoned long before completion. When kings died early or unexpectedly, work on their pyramid halted, and some monuments that would have been quite large are now little more than holes. That may not sound so interesting, but these monuments are actually incredibly valuable. The unfinished pyramids tell us a lot about how these monuments were built, and the pyramid of Sekemket is one of these. A buried monument, partially finished, that was abandoned in the middle of construction. What happened, and how we know about it, is the story of this episode. On January 1st, 1952, a team of excavators were working in the sands of Saqqara. Saqqara, where Netjeriket had built his steppe pyramid, is a vast cemetery. It stretches across the desert plateau west of the Nile, and its cliffs, hills, and dunes hide many secrets. Here, Egyptians were burying their dead for more than 3,000 years, and the Saqqara necropolis is one of the richest for archaeological digs. The team digging at Saqqara in 1952 was Egyptian. It was led by a man named Muhammad Zakaria Ghanem, who had graduated from Cairo University and become a prominent figure in the antiquities service. That was unusual for the time. Up to the 1950s, the top-tier jobs in Egyptian archaeology went to Europeans. The heads of the state antiquities service were all French, even up to 1952. These were famous men like Mariette, Maspero, Loret, and Lacau, whom young Egyptologists learn about in their undergraduate days. Those men did excellent work, but while they contributed much, the French heads of the Antiquities Service were symbols of a dying era. An era when European powers dictated the course of Egypt's political and economic history. By 1952, that era was changing. Muhammad Zakaria Ghanem was among the first in a new generation of Egyptologists. They were born in Egypt, and they came of age at a time when colonial power was dying. As a result, men like Ghanem were able to progress further than their forebears had done, and they could even begin leading projects, rather than just working on them. This is important for us to remember, for the history of Egyptology is inextricably linked with the history of modern Egypt. In January 1952, Ghanem and his team were working in the hills west of Saqqara. They were digging in an area just near to the steppe pyramid of Netjeriket Djoser. 
This was a wide expanse of desert, covered with mounds that seemed to hide monuments of various types. The site had not been explored fully by previous excavations. Saqqara is such a vast area that any dig can only scratch the surface, metaphorically speaking. The team spent weeks clearing sand and rubble from the area, carefully sifting through the dirt in order to find tiny traces and artifacts. They found some valuable pieces, including burials of later periods. But then, Ghanaim's excavators discovered something big. In the course of their work, they stumbled on something marvellous. A staircase descending into the rock and ending in a white stone wall. The stone in question was brilliant, high quality, shining white, which suggested a royal scale monument. This was a moment of great excitement, which Gunaim reflected on a few years later. He said, quote, Perhaps some readers will wonder why such a fuss should be made of a mere stone wall. But this was no ordinary wall. It is very rare to find such a structure untouched by time, and the white wall, as we named it, must have been buried very shortly after its construction. We were looking at something which no human eye had seen for nearly 50 centuries. End quote. Gunaim and his team had stumbled, semi-intentionally, on a magnificent find. A buried pyramid forgotten to history, just next to the monument of Netjeriket. This pyramid was not finished, it was abandoned, presumably because the king died before completion. Left to history, the monument had disappeared beneath the sands which blow in from the west. Now, after thousands of years in the dark, the pyramid was returning to the light. The new monument was slowly cleared and uncovered, and as the foundations emerged, the ambition of this pyramid came to light. Clearly, the ancient king had wanted a truly enormous tomb. The size of the ground plan suggested that the buried pyramid was intended to be about 70 metres tall, a good 10 metres taller than the step pyramid. In other words, old king Sekemket was ambitious. He tried to build something even larger than his predecessor. Periodically, Egyptian kings went through phases of outdoing one another. One ruler came along and commissioned something impressive. Then, the next ruler tried to build something even larger. It happens fairly regularly throughout Egyptian history. Periodic bursts of royal activity, as everyone tries to compete. Sekemket was not the first king to do this, and he certainly would not be the last. But his attempt to outdo the step pyramid does seem amusing in hindsight. As the Egyptian workers cleared rubble and sand from the monument, it was unclear how far the builders had got on the pyramid. Did the ancients complete the tomb or the burial chamber, or did they abandon the monument before those elements were finished? Did the pyramid hold a sarcophagus, or was it merely a cenotaph, abandoned to the winds when its ruler died early? These were nagging questions, and the team had to wait weeks before they got their answer. But at last, they got lucky when the Egyptian workers uncovered Pyramid's entrance. The monument was no memorial, it was functional. The buried pyramid had a tomb. As you can imagine, the discovery of a new pyramid brought all kinds of attention. The head excavator Ghanaim found himself harried by journalists and reporters. 
He mentioned this, saying, quote, Since the opening of the corridor, I've been struggling with the press from all over the world. Every day, journalists come to my villa, eager to get the latest news for their readers. Correspondents, an editor, and a photographer never left my side. On most days, I hardly had time to dress before the crunch of car tyres would announce the arrival of yet another party of visitors. End quote. Now, that may sound like a good problem to have. Lots of attention is good for the funding, right? But when you're trying to do your job carefully and methodically, such distractions slow everything down. For every documentary crew that turns up at an excavation, the head archaeologist has to devote a day to explaining, guiding, and publicizing the work that is still in progress. This makes everything harder, even today. So, we can sympathize with Gunaim. At a moment of great significance, the whole world seemed to be watching, and the man could get no peace. No pressure, right? The aura of excitement increased, as excavations suggested that the pyramid's burial chamber was sealed, intact. The doorway leading to the chamber appeared untouched, a stack of bricks blocking the entrance. Once Gunaim's team photographed the door and removed it, they were greeted with an impressive sight. Behind the door, the pyramid's burial chamber presented a large hall. The walls were rough and chunks of stone littered the floor, remnants of hasty digging by the ancient builders. Among the rubble, excavators found pieces of golden jewellery like rings, which only added to the overall excitement. But all that was dwarfed by the burial chamber's centerpiece, a magnificent sarcophagus carved in white travertine or alabaster. On top of the sarcophagus, a wreath of flowers lay intact, suggesting that the burial was untouched since antiquity. As you can imagine, the excitement quickly reached an ecstatic pitch. The sarcophagus seemed intact, unopened. Excitement was at its highest, and Gonaim acknowledged this fully. Looking back, he said, quote, One by one, my other workmen clambered through the hole into the burial chamber. They were mad with excitement, and, catching their enthusiasm, I gave way completely to my pent-up feelings. We danced around the sarcophagus, and wept. We embraced one another. It was a very strange moment in that dark chamber, 130 feet beneath the surface of the desert. End quote. One of my favourite things about Gnaim's writing is the passion which he communicates. He was no stiff upper lip type, the sort who thinks emotions are unseemly for a scientist. Ghanaim was quite happy to acknowledge that feeling and history are intertwined, that a person can look at something thousands of years old and connect with it on an emotional level. To his credit, he acknowledged that fully. Gunaim's passion for his subject is a beautiful thing, in my opinion, and I love the image of this man, who, in photos, comes across as very serious, dancing with excitement around the burial chamber. Reflecting on it later, Gunaim realised exactly what it was that brought on this joy. He said, quote, Many of these workmen had been employed by great archaeologists such as Reisner or Petrie, and they told me that never in their whole lives had they seen such a thing as this sarcophagus. They were mad with joy, for this was the coronation of three years of patient work. We had had many ups and downs, but now success seemed to be in sight. End quote. So, after years of work, a moment of reward was at hand. 
the opening of the burial chamber, and the discovery of the sealed sarcophagus hinted at great things to come. The newspapers who had badgered Gonaime now reached fever pitch. They ran headlines like, From Pharaoh's tomb comes a gleam of gold. And when the moment finally arrived, the tension must have been unbearable. Quote, And then, suddenly, when the first excitement was over, we became very quiet, and we stood at a distance from the sarcophagus, with great respect and awe towards the king. We read parts of the Quran and asked God for benevolence towards the king, whom we all believed was buried there. And all of those men showed the greatest reverence. End quote. In the face of 4,600 years of history, the chamber fell silent, and with great solemnity, the work began. Over several more days, Ghanim and his team studied the burial chamber and made all necessary precautions to protect the monument. Outside, a team of Sudanese guards patrolled the area day and night. Everyone leaving the site, Ghanim included, was searched thoroughly, lest any small trinket went missing. Although the desire to open the sarcophagus was palpable, the excavators were careful, and they took almost four weeks from entering the chamber to open that coffin. When asked why he took so long, Gonaime explained, quote, It may be asked why we allowed nearly a month to elapse before seeking an answer to the question which was in all our minds. Did the sarcophagus contain the body of a king? The answer is that archaeology is not a treasure hunt, but a search for knowledge, and there were many things to be done, photographs to be taken, measurements to be made, chemical analyses carried out, before we took the next step. I spent many hours inside the pyramid, scrutinizing every inch of the substructure. End quote. For four weeks, Gonaim and his team worked, while also fending off the journalists and visitors who descended on the site. Finally, though, the moment of truth arrived, and on June 27, 1952, they opened the sarcophagus. Gonaim and his team studied the wreath, and then opened the sarcophagus, peering into the dark. What they saw was... nothing. The sarcophagus was empty, its opening revealed nothing but a black hole. Excitement turned to disappointment, the newspapers deflated audibly, and their headlines switched from hype to less charitable words. One paper even ran the headline, Pharaoh Fiasco, a letdown for all involved. Without a mummy, public interest quickly evaporated, the hopes for a new, untouched royal tomb were dashed. But even as the newspapers drifted away, disappointed, Egyptologists were beginning the real work. The buried pyramid was a confounding jumble. Its substructure and burial chambers had been dug, but never finished. The sarcophagus was sealed, but empty. And its masonry, the superstructure, was beautiful, but seemed to be abandoned. Building materials and scraps of debris littered the worksite, providing a snapshot of ancient builders at the moment they left. Clearly, this monument had many secrets to give, which could be immensely valuable to archaeology and Egyptology as a science. Still, the disappointment of the tomb and its empty sarcophagus lingered in the mind. What would happen next? In Chapter 3, we dig deeper into the Buried Pyramid. While the sarcophagus was empty, the monument had a lot more to offer. 
particularly in terms of pyramid construction. Long thought a mystery, the Buried Pyramid was going to give answers on how the ancients built these enormous monuments. Sure, the pyramid had no mummy, but it had treasures of a different and much more significant kind. Zakaria Gunaim, the head archaeologist, was capable and determined to uncover these secrets. As the glare of publicity faded, Gunaim was left in peace, and the work could begin in earnest. We will explore these finds and their significance after the music. Also, we spend a bit more time with Gunaim himself, and see how his story fits into the legacy of Egyptology. It is a fascinating tale for many reasons. In 1952, a magnificent find came to light. A buried pyramid lost to time was rediscovered by an Egyptian archaeological team. Although the sarcophagus was empty and the burial chamber unfinished, those disappointments were not the end of the tale. There is a lot more to uncover about this pyramid and its owner than you might expect. In this final chapter, we dig deeper into these monuments and the third dynasty overall, to see how they fit together. Seventy years after its discovery, the unfinished pyramid reveals far more than you may expect. To begin with, we now know the name of its owner. Inscriptions found in the pyramid itself identify him as the King Horus Sekemket. Sekemket, or powerful of body, inherited power after Netjeriket Djoser. Was he Djoser's son? We don't know. What we do know is that Sekemket appears to be the next king of the Third Dynasty. According to records carved much later, the king who followed Djoser was named Jesserti. And for a long time, historians were unable to figure out who this Jesserti was, or where his monument lay. Then, the unfinished pyramid gave an answer. Sifting through the rubble, the excavators found a label bearing the name Jesserti. As a result, historians could put Jesserti together with the Horus Sekemket. And we now know that Sekemket inherited power from Djoser. Just like that, a piece of the historical puzzle fell into place. Building off of this and other pieces of information, we can say a little bit about the reign of this king. It seems that Sekemket ruled for approximately six years, which is the length given for Jesserti in the king lists. That would fit with the state of his pyramid. Six years was enough time to dig most of the underground passages, at least in a rough form, and it was enough time to prepare the foundations, the building site, and to start raising the pyramid. So from that little connection, we can figure out why the pyramid was abandoned. Sekemket, or Jesserti, only ruled for a short time, and he died before the pyramid advanced. During his reign, Sekemket Jesserti was an active ruler. The king sent followers out to the Sinai Peninsula to mine turquoise in the hills. And we know this because the workmen left an inscription testifying to their activities. The expedition was led by Sekemket's son, 
who left a drawing of himself labelled as, quote, The prince, commander of the expedition, elder of the council chamber, son of the king of his body, seal-bearer of the ruler. End quote. So it seems that Sekemket sent one of his princes to gather turquoise for the crown. To commemorate his presence, the prince ordered his workers to carve an inscription. They drew figures of the king, Sekemket, wearing the two crowns of southern and northern Egypt. They also drew a smaller figure of the prince himself, standing beside his father. From this record, carved on an out-of-the-way cliff in the desert hills, we get a tiny touch of personal history a connection between father and son. Beyond that record, there is not much to go on. King Sekem Ket Jesoti is a shadowy figure, and he did not rule long enough to make a big impact. Still, we have these titbits, and thanks to the discovery of his pyramid, we know a lot more about the context of his reign. Heading back to the buried pyramid, we can get into some reasons why this monument is particularly interesting. The best part about the pyramid is that it is incomplete. Under normal circumstances, a finished pyramid doesn't tell you that much about the era in which it was built. Fortunately, the monument which Gonaim discovered was not finished. It was abandoned partway through the job. Its workers simply walked away. And thanks to this, the building site was very much intact from the original project. This offered a hundred opportunities for study. Because the pyramid was unfinished, archaeologists could study aspects of its construction. The abandoned building site was littered with objects, including tools and traces of the ancient work. Parts of the masonry still had markings, inscriptions, related to the work, including a reference to Imhotep, the man who designed the step pyramid, and the man in charge of stonework. On top of those inscriptions testifying to the building, Archaeologists also found a real gold mine. They found ramps used for hauling the stone up to the monument that were still in place against the pyramid. Half of Sekemket's pyramid is covered in rubble. The rubble forms the ramps which are made of mud and chunks of stone. The largest of these extends towards the west, which was apparently the easiest approach for the builders. Looking at these ramps, we can see the building blocks, literally, of an Egyptian pyramid. And in terms of historical value, finding those ramps was worth much more than any royal mummy. So, although Sekemket's pyramid was unfinished, that actually made it more valuable. Previously, most research on pyramids focused on, you know, the big ones. The ones that stood complete on the western horizon. But there's only so much you can tell from a finished monument. Sometimes, the unfinished projects reveal a lot more. So, archaeologists could now study the pyramid's internal structure and see how the ancients approached their task. It was great. Within the pyramid itself, there was one confusing detail. Sekemket's sarcophagus was empty, but the burial chamber appeared to have been sealed since antiquity. Which raised the question, was the king actually buried in this tomb, or did his early death mean that his mummy went somewhere else? This is an important question, which I would like to tackle very briefly. At first glance, Sekemket's burial chamber appeared to be intact. 
but closer examination reveals that the doorway probably had been opened at least once before that, possibly multiple times. The passage, you see, was bricked up with stones, but the pattern of those stones revealed something interesting. One half of the door was tightly packed, with mortar filling the gaps. The other half, though, was far more haphazard. The stones were looser, more widely spaced, as if they had been put there later to fill a hole in the door. In other words, the physical structure of the doorway suggested that the tomb had been opened and entered at least once before. It was subsequently resealed in a kind of rush job. The stones were shoved in loosely to fix the hole. With this in mind, we can maybe start to understand why the mummy was not in its sarcophagus. It's possible that robbers had got into the tomb, tunnelling through the original door. At some point, they may have opened the sarcophagus and stolen or destroyed the mummy in their haste to find jewellery. Later, when royal agents discovered the robbery, they may have hastily resealed the sarcophagus and purified it to maintain some of the magic. Then, they closed the tomb again, but because they did their work quickly, they accidentally left a marker of what might have happened. That is just one interpretation. Another possibility is that Sekemket was never buried in the tomb at all. Perhaps, when the king died early, his mummy was placed in another crypt, another location yet to be found. In this scenario, the sealed burial chamber may have been a symbolic burial, fulfilling some of the pyramid's intended purpose. If that's the case, it would also explain why the sarcophagus appeared to be intact, but contained no mummy. The ancients had presented it like a real burial, in order to maintain the power of the overall monument. Even if the mummy was elsewhere, the magic could still do its work. These scenarios are impossible to answer with absolute certainty, and these are the kind of problems that Egyptologists deal with regularly. Sometimes, it seems like we have abundant information about a particular monument, or person, or place. Other times, the gaps in the puzzle are far more visible. It's frustrating, but scholars keep working to add more to the picture. So, King Sekemket came to power following the death of Djoser. He reigned for about six years, give or take, and he died young. His pyramid was only partly finished, and the workers had to stop construction, possibly to prepare for an unexpected burial. Sekemket was laid to rest, either in his sarcophagus or in another location. Either way, the unfinished pyramid was sealed. Regrettably, the site was not secure, and the tomb perhaps was robbed once or more than once before royal agents closed it for good. They did their best, but it was a poor substitute, and at the end, the sarcophagus lay empty, with few traces of the original burial. This was how archaeologists found it, four and a half thousand years later. King Sekemket died, and power transitioned to a new generation. By now, the third dynasty of Egyptian rulers was in full swing. The next few kings would achieve some significant things, building monuments of their own, and developing some intriguing new ideas. But these rulers are largely forgotten today. Their deeds are known only to the most dedicated researchers. Why is this? Did they not deserve memory? Or was it something else? 
Very briefly, I would like to explore the next 25 years of Egyptian history and find out why the Third Dynasty has become so shadowy. With Sekem kept dead, power passed to a new generation, and the Third Dynasty was in full swing. What followed was a long but shadowy period of history. Several rulers, each reigning for a short period, came and went. Most of them started to build pyramids, but none of them finished them, and over the course of the next 20 years, several monuments would rise in the Nile Valley. Let's cover these very briefly. Soon after Netjeriket and Sekemket, the Horus Kaaba came to power. Kaaba's name means the bar or soul appears. We do not know much about Kaaba, only that he started work on a large pyramid a few kilometers north of Saqqara. Netjeriket and Sekemket had hogged the glory of Saqqara's necropolis. Now, a new ruler wanted to stand out. Kaaba was going different. Kaaba ruled for about five years, like Sekemket, and like Sekemket, he started work on a pyramid that he couldn't finish. He got close, though. Kaaba's pyramid at a site called Zawiyet el Aryan is another step pyramid. It is commonly called the Layer Pyramid, and its architecture is extremely similar to the monument of Sekemket. So it's clearly part of the same architectural tradition, but once again, this monument was incomplete when its ruler died. Kaaba was an active ruler whose name appears throughout Egypt. He left records at Hierakonpolis and Elephantine, and even at Edfu, a town sacred to the god Horus. Kaaba also left his name at Zawiyet al Aryan. Stone bowls inscribed with his name were discovered in that area, which suggests that the pyramid of Zawiyet al Aryan is associated with him. We can't be sure of that, obviously. A name near a pyramid is not proof of its ownership, but it is the best we have for now. And because the architectural style of this monument is clearly Third Dynasty, a ruler like Kaaba is the best bet. Just up the road, so to speak, another pyramid at Zawiyet el Aryan poses some interesting questions. This pyramid was also discovered completely by accident on the 15th of May 1900. On that day, an Italian architect named Alexander Barsanti was riding home from his work. He had been excavating the Pyramid of Kaaba to the south, and as he rode home, he took a shortcut across the desert. After a while, Barsanti's Egyptian overseer, the Reis in Arabic, pointed out that the ground they were crossing was covered in chips of stone. Following the advice of his Reis, Barsanti began clearing the next day. What he found was fascinating. Barsanti and archaeologists who followed him cleared an enormous pit descending into the earth. It was accessed by a ramp which was lined with walls of granite. At the bottom, in the burial chamber, an oval sarcophagus had been placed into the floor. It was a strange monument for sure, and when Barsanti opened the sarcophagus, it was empty, just like the sarcophagus of Sekemket. Barsanti was unsatisfied. He was convinced that a real burial chamber lay somewhere beneath the floor. He searched this monument for years, but never found anything, and after his death, other teams excavated this pyramid repeatedly. Likewise, they never found anything, and it seemed that the monument was tapped out. Well, maybe. The unfinished pyramid deserves another excavation. Unfortunately, 
the Egyptian army decided to build a military base here during the 1950s. Now, the site is a rubbish dump beneath an army barracks, which is a sad end for a curious building. Hopefully, archaeologists will get permission to return, one day. The unfinished pyramid, the Open Pit, probably belonged to a king named Sarnacht Nebka, whose name was found on stone blocks and mason's marks throughout the building. Barsanti hauled many blocks out of this pit, and they bore the cartouches of this king. Sarnacht Nebka means the powerful protector, the lord of the Ka, or spirit. This is a curious name, quite similar to Kaaba, the Ba, or soul, appears. The Ba and Ka are famous symbols of ancient Egyptian religion. They relate to two different parts of a human's essence. The Ba, or soul, seemed to represent the mind or consciousness which lived on after death and travelled to the afterlife. The Ka, meanwhile, was closer to a person's vitality or spirit. It remained on earth where it benefited from offerings, and giving gifts to a person's Ka was a good way to honour their memory and ensure their happiness in the afterlife. We will come back to the Ba and Ka many times in this podcast. For now, it's enough to know that the kings Ka-Ba and Neb-Ka are two of the earliest rulers to use these ideas prominently. Anyway, we know very little about Sarnacht Nebka as a king. Besides the records within this pyramid, there is not much to go on. We know that he had an estate, maybe a fortress, at Elephantine, the southern border of the kingdom, and he left some artefacts at the necropolis of Saqqara. Beyond that, not much. Even his exact position in the Third Dynasty used to be unclear. It took a long time before archaeological finds resolved the chronology, so that we could confidently place Nebkar towards the end of this period. Beyond that, we know almost nothing about this man. The unfinished pyramid may seem mysterious, a monument out of place in the historical chronology. In truth, it does fit with what we know of Third Dynasty monuments. This unfinished pyramid of Nebkar represents the first stage of a step pyramid, one that was designed like that of Djoser. The enormous pit dug into the earth is the same type that we see in the original step pyramid. The difference here is that the pit was never finished because the king died early. So the monument was left in a terribly incomplete state, an open hole dug into the ground. Had Nebkar lived, this pit would have been finished and sealed, and then covered by the pyramid on top. As it stands, it looks strange, out of place, but once you dig deeper into the architectural history, it makes a lot more sense. So, the unfinished pyramid of Zawiyat al-Aryan seems to represent the first stage in another step pyramid. The great pit dug into the earth was the first phase in building the burial chamber, the deep shaft that we see in the finished monument of Netjeriket Djoser. Had it been complete, the chamber and the entrance would have been covered by the monument above. Unfortunately, that ruler died before it could reach completion. It was another interrupted reign in the shadowy Third Dynasty. Finally, we come to the last king of this period. After Sekemket, Kaaba, and Sarnacht Nebka, 
a ruler named Huni came to power. Huni is a famous name in Egyptology. For one thing, he is probably the father of a king named Sneferu, first ruler of the fourth dynasty, and the man who commissioned the first true pyramid. We will meet Sneferu in episode 5. For now, let us briefly cover the reign of Huni. Huni came to power around 2630 BCE. He probably did not rule for long because he did not complete a large pyramid. Instead, Huni seems to have devoted his resources to building a whole series of smaller pyramids. These are tiny by most standards, the largest ones are about 15 metres tall, so really quite small. These monuments were built up and down the Nile Valley, and many towns in Egypt have a Huni pyramid nearby. The most notable ones are located at Elephantine, the southern border, at Abydos, the traditional cemetery of early kings, and Hierakonpolis, where the famous Nahmer Palat was discovered. There are many more pyramids scattered throughout the country, and they seem to have been built as a single unified project. It is unclear what these provincial pyramids represent. On the one hand, they might be symbols of the growing power which Huni and other kings wielded. Every pyramid could be a reminder to the local community that their ruler, the king of the two lands, was wealthy, powerful, and present. On the other hand, they might be memorials to Huni himself, or the idea of kingship as a concept. Other interpretations vary quite widely. It's possible that the small pyramids were memorials for Huni's wives, women who may have come from different parts of the country. Or, these pyramids might represent the Benben, the primeval mound which emerged from the waters of creation, long before the world. All of these hypotheses are possible, and more than one might be correct. We simply do not know at the present time. What we do know is that these smaller pyramids would have required a great deal of organisation in different parts of the country. It is one thing to gather masons, craftsmen, builders and labourers on a single project, but trying to organise several of those at once is another feat entirely. In that sense, Huni's pyramids represent the growing sophistication of Egypt's government. Over 400 years of accumulating experience and generations of experimentation were starting to produce a cohesive, organised state. The royal administration was now achieving things it could not have dreamed of just a century before. By the time Huni died and his son came to power, the Egyptian government was tackling more and larger problems. They were doing so in rather impressive ways. Looking back, the Third Dynasty may seem shadowy and mysterious, but archaeologists and historians can tease out many details which illuminate this period. The unfinished pyramids are not relics of weak or short-lived kings. They are valuable markers of cultural, economic, and social development. Every monument tells us something about the larger trends of Egypt's history. And as experts dig deeper into the material, they find more and more information. Gradually, our picture of the Third Dynasty becomes clearer, and we can see how these rulers and their people 
were achieving great things. So, the buried pyramids of the 3rd dynasty present a variety of details for archaeologists to study. Whether it is the construction ramps and underground work of Sekemket pyramid, or the half-finished pit of Zawiyat al aryan these monuments offer a wealth of information to the dedicated and careful scholar. Of course, we do not have all the answers yet, and there are many questions to investigate. Still, as each generation of Egyptologists digs into this material, more pieces of the puzzle fall into place. Speaking of puzzles, I would like to return to the man who helped introduce this episode. Muhammad Zakaria Ghanim, the man who discovered Sekemket, deserves another chapter. His life was a sad story in many respects, and in the epilogue of this episode, I want to dig into that. Stick around after the music to hear more of this scholar's life. Otherwise, thank you for joining me, and I will see you on the next episode. As I mentioned earlier, this episode is dedicated to the memory of Muhammad Zakaria Ghanem. Ghanem was an Egyptian archaeologist, a prominent Egyptian archaeologist, at a time when Egyptians were less common in the field. Ghanem was born into a world where Egyptology was the dominion of Europeans. For the first five decades of his life, 1905 to 1952, the big bosses of Egyptology, the heads of the Department of Antiquities, were all French. So, Ghanem's rise to prominence and renown was extremely noteworthy, and when he discovered the pyramid of Sekemket, Ghanem became a figure whom international audiences knew. He went on speaking tours in many countries presenting his findings. For an Egyptian, this was a significant achievement. Ghanem and his colleagues broke new ground, native Egyptians excelling in a formerly European game. Everything was going so well, until it wasn't. Sadly, Gonaim's life did not have a peaceful ending. A few years after his discovery at Saqqara, Gonaim was accused, falsely, of stealing an artifact and selling it on the black market. Gonaim's accusers offered no proof, but the object in question could not be found, so nor could he defend himself. The accusations led to harassment and slander, which took a toll on the 48-year-old man. Eventually, the object that Gonaim was accused of selling turned up in a storeroom near the place of its discovery. So the accusers were proved wrong. Not only did they not have proof, the object itself was not even stolen. Sadly, that didn't seem to matter too much. Not long after the object was recovered, Zakaria Gonaim was found dead, having drowned in the Nile. The cause of death was recorded as suicide, but this is also uncertain. Gunaim's death was suspicious at the very least, and we cannot rule out a more sinister cause. The death was unjust. Gunaim's life should not have ended that way in those circumstances. Whether it was suicide, accident, or even murder, the events that brought him to that point were the products of injustice. Gunaim's death is a sad chapter in the history of Egypt and of Egyptology, one that I want to acknowledge. I will leave Gunaim's story with a more positive note, written by a man who knew him in a professional capacity. When he was writing his book, The Buried Pyramid, Gunaim asked Leonard Cottrell to write the preface. Cottrell was a journalist, and the author of popular books on archaeology, 
He was a self-described amateur, but he took the time to get to know archaeologists and to learn as much as he could. He became friends with Gonaim, and when Gonaim asked him to contribute to this book, Cottrell wrote the following words. Quote, Mr. Gonaim is a scholar and a professional Egyptologist. He has, I believe, something not always found among specialists, a burning passion for his chosen subject and a gift for communicating it in simple terms. From our first meeting, I recognized in Gonaim a man who not only knew his subject but had a passionate love for it. In spite of his many duties, he found time to take me to the Theban necropolis to answer patiently my many questions and reawakening my dormant interests. From that moment onwards, I became a devotee of ancient Egypt. In fact, my various publications owe their origin directly to those conversations with Zakaria Gonaim. End quote. Leonard Cottrell wrote those words in 1955. Four years later, Gonaim was dead. And while Cottrell did not know the legacy his words would have, they are a fitting tribute to an accomplished and noteworthy scholar one who deserved the opportunity to contribute more to his people. Thanks to Gonaim and many others, we know a lot more about the Third Dynasty than we did just 70 years ago. A careful, skilled, and passionate excavator, Gonaim was a great example for a new generation of scholars. Had he lived longer, we would probably know him as a great figure of 20th century Egyptology. For now, his achievements stand testimony, and we can salute him.